Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. You know, when we consider the explosion of social media and the adoption of social media, usually the focus of the conversation is on the connections possible and how people and organizations are using the media to communicate, to form communities, and to conduct business. Lacking, sometimes, is an investigation of the design of these spaces and how the design influences how organizations and individuals communicate, form communities, and conduct business. Today, we'll consider design and how the design of interfaces affects our online interactions. To speak with us on this topic, we have Judith Donath, a faculty fellow at Harvard University's Berkman Center, and a visiting scholar at MIT's Program in Science, Technology, and Society. She's also the author of the new book, The Social Machine, Designs for Living Online. Welcome, Judith. Hello. Great. Great to be here. Good, good, good. Now, first, as we often like to do on uh, new books in technology, just want to ask you, could you briefly introduce yourself and, and tell us how you got into the area that you're researching and that you researched for uh, the social machine. Okay. I have actually been looking at the potential for computers to be a medium for social interaction since the 1980s. So um, from a time when most of the discussion was really about trying to convince people that this really would happen, which they were very skeptical about, Mm -hmm. to today where it's ubiquitous. Um, I started, I was a history major as an undergraduate, and I was very interested in scientific revolutions, like the Copernican Revolution, and and this was in the early 80s, and I felt that there was a, you know, huge technological revolution going on at the time with computers, and it would be my chance to see, to experience that from the inside. So I started taking computer science classes, and... um, became very interested in how potentially you could communicate with them. There was, you know, there was certainly email then. The internet was, you know, is greatly predates the web. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were big news groups on Usenet. And it was fascinating. Like, so there were conversations that people could have all with, you know, other, at the time, mostly researchers and technologists, but all over the world at any time of day on all kinds of topics. And I was absolutely mesmerized by this. And I thought, this is really the future. And so since then, I've been interested in both how people use these technologies, but also because they're on a computer, it's very, very easy to invent new environments, new ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And so thinking a lot about how, what are the ways we can interact online that we haven't yet developed. Mm -hmm. So then coming to the book, uh, the social machine designs for living online. What is it about now that sparked the, the, I guess, impetus for publishing this book right now at this time? <laughs> <laughs> 
not to a large extent I finished writing it. Okay. <laughs> that, that would be one reason to do it. But I think also now is a, is a really interesting time because the, the technologies are there. Um, people are used to the idea. It's not news to anyone that we're going, you know, that we communicate online. But, um, but we're seeing a lot of the dark sides to this also. Mm-hmm. A recent um, survey by Pew Internet, you know, stood out for, you know, because they're always asking luminaries, what's the future of the Internet? And it's usually, this is great. It's going to, you know, solve all the world's problems. And then this year, they said, you know, it was markedly darker. Mm-hmm. And so I think I hadn't necessarily foreseen all the concerns about technology that we'd have, but I think it's a great time for the book to come out because I think a lot of the way people look at it is that these issues are inevitable. It's inevitably going to be about losing privacy or it's inevitably going to be about being less sociable than we could be face-to-face. And I think one of the key messages of this book is that it's, you know, a lot of these issues are like saying, is a chair comfortable? Well, some are, (laughs) some aren't. And we're just much less aware of the design that goes into the interfaces that we communicate with online. And so I hope, I mean, the, the book is written both for professional designers, but also for people, anyone who is online, to help them think about what, what are the different ways we could be designing things that would help us achieve greater privacy, maybe in greater privacy than we'd have without the Internet? How can we use it to deal with a lot of issues around identity? How, you know, there's a tremendous amount of approaches that have simply not been tried yet. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, one of the quotes in, in your book that I wanted to ask you about is you say, for the online world to achieve its promise, we need to design interfaces that work with how we see and respond to the world around us. And I was just wondering um, how, what, first of all, what does that mean and, and how we could see that? Are there any examples of that currently happening? Well, what I, a lot of what I was thinking about when I was writing that was how sensorily deprived a lot of the online world is. Mm -hmm. When we are face-to-face, for instance, people really like to meet in restaurants over, you know, or go for a walk together or meet for a drink together. It's a multi-sensory experience that the environment that you're around, you know, we don't particularly like to meet in ugly places with harsh fluorescent lighting, it changes the tone of our interactions. But also what we see of each other is a very rich experience. Online, a lot of what we see are lines of text. I mean, the web over the years has become much more colorful and, you know, there's a lot more photographs now and we're starting to use visual things more. But except for a little bit in the world of visualization, there's not that much attention paid to, you know, how when you set up an interface for a conversation, how does, you know, how can you set different moods? You know, what should a business-like situation look like and feel like? What should a more casual one look like? If you take a screenshot right now, the interface that you would use, you know, that's used by a financial website, a dating website, a political discussion, are all sort of columns of text that you wouldn't necessarily be able to distinguish visually without reading the word. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, 
how important then is design with respect to particularly social media and, and why is design so important? Is it more, are we talking about more than just aesthetics or? Absolutely. Because, um, for instance, when you are, you know, even though we don't necessarily like concrete rooms with fluorescent lighting, you could still have a conversation there. The design of the space influences the tone face-to-face, but ultimately, if you're sitting down with someone, you can talk to them. The potential for having that conversation remains the same. However, online, the designers of the space have far greater control over what you see. It is a function of the design of the space. Do you see, you know, see other people with verified names? Do you see them with pseudonyms or anonymously? Do you see them, do you see the history of what they've said or just what they're doing at the present moment? Do you literally see them? Does it involve video or are you only seeing text? If you're seeing them as an image, is it an image of them or, you know, in the gaming world, is it an avatar, most of whose motions are actually coming from the computer, not the person? Um, Is your correspondence ephemeral or is it going to be archived? If it's archived, is it public or private? So there's an enormous number of very substantive elements that change everything about what the communi- what the structure of the communication is that are effectively decisions of the site's designer. Mm-hmm. Now I'm wondering, does, or I guess we're seeing examples of design and how, I guess, the next popular social media, particularly site, um, has a totally different design. If I think about uh, MySpace, the old MySpace, very mm-hmm. kind of, not necessarily <laughs> um, all that, you know, beautiful in design. Mm-hmm. And then we move to Facebook, which has a more structured design, uh, more mm-hmm. uniformed, at least it started that way. And, and how then did the design, I guess, influence people to adopt the newer site um, and, and basically abandon the old site? Right. I mean, I think MySpace had problems beyond design. Right. It was very insecure, so a lot of what you saw wasn't just that people put up all kinds of things that you know were their taste, which was you know in facebook you you just can't express that much of your visual taste, you know they keep it pretty uniform looking or you know it's less so now, but it's still fairly uniform, but my space was very in, it it wasn't secure, so that half the pages you would look at were just covered in spam and advertising um and also Facebook has made a number of really, really brilliant decisions about how to make this type of kind of broadcast friendship space work. Um, you know, MySpace didn't have the equivalent of the news feed. So you would go, there was less of a sense that things were going on. You know, I, I have... You know, I'm writing, but it's very easy to distract myself with Facebook because there's always that updates from people. You you have this sort of constant stream of things happening. So the older social networking sites didn't have that. You know, people would update things, but it was they put something on their page. You could go and look at it, but it didn't come to you in the same way. So there wasn't a kind of ongoing social flow. So I don't think the issue was primarily the visual design. You know, I think arguably 
you could one could have a successful social site that's much more expressive in its visuals than Facebook is and succeed very well, but it would have to not make MySpace's other mistakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions, another questions I, ha- I have for you is whether design encourages certain kinds of interactions. Uh, one of the um, previous interviews we had was with Vili uh, Lidenverta, uh, and he's a co-author of this new book, uh, Virtual Economies, and how to design um, or things to think about for designing a, a site wherein a virtual economy uh, pops up or um, automatically has an economy. And I was wondering how design or does design encourage certain kinds of interactions? Well, certainly it does. I mean, you can look at pretty much um, any some of it, okay, let me start with, some of it is there are sites that are very, very carefully engineered to have particular types of interactions. So one example is a site such as Stack Overflow, where they want people to come up with sort of definitive answers to questions that have definitive answers, like math issues, science issues, programming problems. And there's a whole set of rewards built into the site for giving a particular type of answer. Um, Quora does another, is another question and answer site that while it's less about factuality, really builds in types of rewards for giving the right type of answer. Um, and you can have things like that in places that are very antisocial. There's a notorious site called 4chan that a lot of the internet memes come from. But if you look at, and I talk about this some in the book, but if you look at the structure of the site, the way, for instance, everything, it discourages the use of names, something has to be very, very memorable to be refreshed all the time, it really, really pushes the type of discourse that it gets, um, is a clear result of a very carefully engineered interface to elicit pretty much that type of um, behavior. Um even on a, you know, even within the social network sites, there's a difference between something like LinkedIn and Facebook, where LinkedIn has pushed, you know, being about business, and it does it partly through its interface. It doesn't have that type of news feed, or it's sort of slowly starting to have it, but it discouraged photographs. It was very gray. You really felt when you, if you thought, oh, I have this idea. I want to share it with the people I know, there was a, a strong sense that, you know, if it's about like the funny thing I did, my kid did on vacation, that LinkedIn just wasn't the place for it. There's nothing that physically prevented you from putting it there, but the site design was all about giving people a very strong clue about what type of things were appropriate there. Right. And how much is that is audience, either the intended audience or the audience that a site wants to attract? Well, again, it's a mix because the examples I just gave were examples of places where the designers of the site have been working very hard at manufacturing a particular style of interaction. But within them, for instance, um, going back, I said when I first got into this, that the big pre-web interaction space was Usenet. And one of the things that was really fascinating about Usenet was that it had different news groups on all kinds of different topics. It ranged from motorcycles to, um, you know, 
new motherhood to science fiction, but then like, you know, also like the innards of, you know, a particular aspect of the Unix um, compilers and things. So some of it was very, very technical, some very scientific, some highly controversial. But the interface for every one of these forums was exactly the same. And you can see this today in any site that has a wide range of forums. Mm -hmm. There you'll see that the technology is pretty much the same, but often the content of the discussion and the types of people who are drawn to it will make for a very, very different environment. And if the site itself doesn't impose too many rules, so like Stack Overflow is by design so overwhelming in the way it's structured that even though it has different topics, they are meant to, as much as possible, feel the same. But in a more open-ended forum, you will find that you have a very, very different tenor and that different groups evolve very different mores about what's appropriate, what's funny, what's allowed, etc. Are there certain aspects of design in these spaces that allow, even in spite of, I guess, say in LinkedIn, which has a very particular purpose or had a very particular purpose for business and making business and networking connections, but are there design aspects that would make, say, a, a site with, with a very specific purpose morph into something completely different? Um, well, again, it, it sort of depends on how strongly the people who, have, who are controlling the interface feel about what, it's, what it should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think Facebook, again, it's, is you see it going through sort of a continuous evolution um, as partly people are using it in different ways and if the organ, you know, the corporate designers feel like, oh, that's not exactly what we want people to be using it or they change what they, how they want people to use it. So, you know, that's an example of, of being able to watch a site going through a continuous series of evolutions to subtly or less subtly prod people to use it in a different way. So, one example there is people who are sort of just chatting and they're saying, oh, you know, here's what I did. It's sort of a online stream of consciousness diary. Mm-hmm. They thought, you know, that's kind of boring. We want people, you know, we want people to be more engaged with what, what other people say and people are using it to say boring things. <laughs> so we're going to redesign it in a way that what you see is less boring. You know, we're going to make it so that you don't see everything. If we deem this is not interesting for whatever our reasons or algorithms have, it won't get shown. Um, we'd like to have more pictures. We find that people get really engaged in viral quizzes, so we'll promote them. So they sort of do a constant reshaping be- because of just that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, you just talked about constant reshaping of the design and the kinds of interactions. And then one of the stated goals in the book is to inspire designers to be more radical and thoughtful in their creations. And I just want to know uh, what does radical mean for you as far as design in these online spaces? Well, I think a lot of it is um, there's a problem particularly today with the success of things such as Facebook is that a lot of people who want to start a new service will try and copy the existing ones, uh-huh. you know, to be the new Facebook. And so part of what I try and um, highlight in the book are certain questions that 
or things that just aren't being addressed by today's sites at all. Um, for instance, a lot of the emphasis I put on is visualization or thinking about how we want to use the archive of materials of sort of the data portrait that someone has painted about themselves, but also from a privacy perspective, thinking about that in light of a world in which people could have easily maintained multiple pseudonyms that were very vivid but were local to different communities. That's not something that has been done very much these days. I'm also interested in thinking about interactions beyond text, um, in particular since the web um, came up, it wasn't, it's very text focused. Um, there have been a lot more beginnings of exper experiments with more graphical spaces before it. Um, and I think there's a lot of richness to be looked at in that direction again, as it's easier to ha as computers are faster and the technologies are there to still to make them and still be quite widespread. And so how you would use those, how would you, um, how do you make spaces that are, for instance, really well designed for debate? We have a lot of problems with online debates that they're notorious for ending up with, you know, two parties in opposite directions sitting in their corner calling each other names. So I'm interested in how can you, you know, what are the ways that we can develop interfaces to get people to argue better, mm -hmm. more constructively? So there's, you know, I think there's a lot of questions like that that trying to be the next Facebook won't necessarily point you to. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you have to, as part of your research, use more than just an examination of technology, but you, some of the things you're talking about are sociological and anthropology anthropological and those kinds of things. And I'm just wondering how um, out study of social science interacts with this study of the technology and the design side. Well, you really want to start with an understanding of what motivates people, what do they pay attention to, um, how do they make sense of other people. And to recognize that at, at the heart, that's what you're trying to do with an interface. You want to make, make that easier. You may at times want to make it harder. You may want, for instance, one of the fundamental issues is how do, how do people make sense of another person? How do you get a sense of someone's personality? How do you, what are the things you really want to know about them? They can vary from context to context. You know, is it that, you know, how much do I trust them? How funny do I think they are? Do I, do I understand their words? Can I tell when they're being sarcastic or straightforward? There's just a lot that's about that we can put in this sort of big umbrella of identity. And um, so, I think that's, you know, to some extent the holy grail of interface design for social things is how, you know, how does your interface help us make sense of another person? How does it help me make the impression that I want to make while at the same time letting other people sort of see through a bit who I am and keeping that balance in the right space for what you're trying to achieve? So um, to study social science is to start to understand what are, you know, what are some of the ways we do this? There's the science of understanding, like, what, what do people learn from faces? What do people learn from words? How do, how do we use the subtleties in what people, so there's a whole field of sociolinguistics. Um, how do we, for instance, we can highlight words, we can highlight phrases, we can do all kinds of things. 
that will make the social information more salient, but you need an understanding of, of what it is that people use to make sense of each other. Mm-hmm. Now, how much or can inter, uh, new interfaces and new designs for interfaces help with things like, you mentioned trust, but also context, which sometimes is lost um, with online social interactions. Uh, if you think about older uh Interactions, so email and the amount of time that people have to really consider emails and the tone that emails are sent with, you don't really know because it's just, you know, text on a, a screen. But, uh, so I'm wondering how much design can assist with things like context or providing context, I should say. Right. Well, I think a lot because one, um, and it's a very important piece, especially from a privacy perspective, um, in particular, have some idea of, for instance, who your audience is. Um, so I think one piece of that is, for instance, a type of context is to understand what is the extent to which your words are carrying. So, and again, this is, this is not that Every single space needs to be designed this way. Mm-hmm. There are reasons sometimes, you know, that you, people are much more forthcoming when they're not always aware of their audience. But sometimes you want to give people the understanding of that so that they will be less forthcoming, uh, which is sometimes very <laughs> useful. Um, how big is your audience? How long will this material persist? Um, those are things that an in, that interface design can really help with. I mean, for instance, on something like Twitter, uh, you know, this very peculiar relationship between your audience and who you are listening to, because when you tweet something out, your set of followers may be completely disjoint from the people who follow who you follow. So you always feel that you're speaking to the people whose words you are reading, but you're actually speaking to a completely different set of people. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I would very much like a representation that helped remind me and help me make sense of that distinction. You know, even in that set of who are the people who I read who don't read me, because sometimes I'll find myself thinking of them as my audience and they're not. So that's a very simple example. But there's a lot of key contextual pieces, like both the time that something will persist and the scale of the audience that we can really design better for. Now, in the book, you talk about six topics related to design. There's 12 chapters, six topics. Each topic has two um, chapters devoted to it, design, both on the design and the other one on the theory. And six topics like visualizing social data, virtual bodies, and the transformation of everyday life. And I'm wondering, how did you choose these six as the important topics for the book? You know, I think these really just emerged from what I was writing. I didn't sit down with that as a outline and mm-hmm. proceed to, to write out <laughs> six topics and six pieces. Um, it was a very long process of rearranging material. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, and that's kind of what emerged from it. Um, but I think so the, and those pieces kind of, worked as pairs, and it was really an emergent thing where at some stage I realized I'd actually started with a book in two halves, which was sort of design ideas and principles, and then sort of social critique. And then as I was looking at it, I realized that there were a lot of pairings. Like an obvious one is there's a chapter on 
um, data prof- data portraits, and there's a chapter on identity, and those go together, and, you know, et cetera, like that. And I realized that it just worked out very nicely, and that I felt it had a nicer rhythm. So, but it wasn't a grand plan. <laughs> Okay. So the book is The Social Machine Designs for Living Online, uh, published by MIT Press and available Amazon and all those other good places. Now, if we want to read more of your work, can we find it someplace online? Yes. Um, you can either, the easiest is probably to search on my name, but I have a site, um, it's called vivatropolis.org. Um and so vivatropolis.org slash Judith, I have pretty much all my writings are online. So there's a lot there. <laughs> Great. So what's next for you? Um, well, I'm writing a number of, as I as this book has come out, lots of contemporary issues have come up, you know. So one thing I'm doing is writing a number of related articles that sort of tie this book into sort of contemporary debates about Facebook, et cetera. But I'm starting work on another book that I'm really excited about that uses signaling theory from biology mm-hmm. to help understand communication in general, wow. so not just online communication. And it takes as its fundamental problem the issue of if, if you can get away with it, it's pretty much always profitable to lie, to say that you're better, smarter, faster than you really are. But if all communication was dishonest, it would cease to function. What keeps communication reliable enough to be functional? Wow. Wow, that sounds very interesting. We hope that you come back on New Books and Technology when that book comes out. So this book, though, is The Social Machine, Designs for Living Online. The author is Judith Donath. And we thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. No problem. So this has been New Books in Technology. Have a great day. Thank you.